0: <laughs> and one story that always kind of captures my imagination I'm kind of the streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I'm Dana Baldut, and this is Kerning Cultures.
1: Can I interview you about bananas?
0: Our story today starts in Minneapolis the Somali heartland of America. The place is Kurahlao Restaurant, and we're asking people about a staple of Somali cuisine, a mascot to sell, the Somali banana.
2: Um, So the question is, uh, where do you think bananas originated from? Somalia. Okay. How do you think that story went? So I'm thinking there was this farmer... And so he was hungry, too. It was really hot. It was like 3 p.m. The sun was boiling down on him. So then he knocked on the, the tree trunk, and these mystical yellow bananas came. And then he's like, oh. he, he took them. He ran to the village. I was like, these are the bananas. They're going to be called bananas. Uh, when do you think the first banana was discovered?
3: I honestly think it started with some girl, you know, in Badio. Saw banana, put food,
2: maybe in like, you know, the 500s year, you know? Back in the day, herding camels somewhere. And I think she's the one that made that choice.
3: What do you, th- what do you think her name was?
2: My sister's name's Ladan, and I feel impu- I feel like a Ladan would do it, you know? Old, original Somali names, you know?
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I reckon the first Somali
4: was born with a banana in the hand.
1: Um, When would you
4: say the relationship between bananas and Somalis will end? Will end? Never. Till jannah and infinity and beyond.
0: Bananas hold a special place in Somali culture. They're a staple of the Somali diet. And an essential part to dishes like basto, sugo, and barises kujeres. And the bananas that come from Somalia are special. They're sweeter, they're tastier, and they're a little bit smaller than the usual ones you might see at the supermarket. And if you grew up in the Middle East or North Africa like I did in the 80s and 90s, maybe in Saudi or Lebanon, you might have spotted Somali bananas among the other varieties at the supermarket. And at the time they were everywhere because Somalia was a major player in the African banana business. By the late 90s, it was the largest exporter in East Africa, and tens of thousands of farmers across the country depended on this very humble but sweet fruits. All of that, though, changed in 1991. Somalia descended into a brutal civil war, which completely devastated the country, and with it, the banana industry. Exports dried up, and just like that, Somali bananas vanished. But not forever.
4: The demand for bananas has never been higher. Traders now export it to countries in the Middle East,
1: within Somalia. The, the demand fresh shipment for bananas of the banana exports, high.
3: which consists of two containers, was shipped to Saudi the Arabia. The banana
1: industry is making a profound comeback in Somalia. After two decades of four devastated its Somalia leading is now
5: a trusted exporter. I would like to urge all Somali farmers to increase their farming ability in order to meet for the new demand.
0: Producers Nadine Shakir and sausan Abdullahi came to the story after catching news headlines about a resurgence of Somali bananas. It had been years since they'd even seen or heard anything about this fruit. And so... They decided um, you know. to look further into uh, it.
2: And I texted you and I was like, hey, uh, this is what's happening. And I know or I felt from your voice that you were a little bit skeptical about it. You know, initially when we had to
3: start looking for farmers to corroborate this, I think very early on, I spoke to two farmers. And uh, I remember both of them telling
0: us we can't sell anything. And I'm like, OK, where is this? Um, Come back. Was it just the media getting overexcited? Or were Somali bananas truly making a comeback? Today, we uncover the truth about Somali bananas and its history, and we'll find out if we'll ever see or taste Somali bananas again. Here's Nadine.
2: When Sausan and I started investigating the possible return of Somali bananas, nothing prepared us for what we would find. Articles and news reports from across the world were specifically claiming that Somalis from the diaspora were partly responsible for the banana comeback because they were returning to Somalia to revive their family farms. But finding one of those diaspora farmers to talk to wasn't exactly straightforward. It's not like you can go on Google and say, like, Somali farmers, you know what I mean? Although admittedly, I secretly
3: tried doing that. So we had to sort of tap into the Somali diaspora network. There was even a Somali farmers group that I you know, I
2: was (laughs) pushed to. After being handed from one person to another and talking to several farmers in rural Somalia, we finally found Koshin Garane.
6: Uh, Hello, Nadine. It's uh, very nice to meet you too. I know this has been in the works for a long time. My name is Koshin Kurfa Garane. Um, I'm 38 years old, born in 1984 in Mogadishu.
3: Because the internet was so poor in the part of Somalia where Koshin lives, getting on a call with good audio was nearly impossible. So at first, we were sending each other WhatsApp voice notes.
6: Uh, I was around five, six years old when the civil war took place in 1991. So I, I fled with my family. You know, I've since lived in many different countries. And since then, obviously, I've come back to Somalia to try and run the family farm. So the farm is uh, it's, it's around 500 hectares and uh, previously it used to be used as a, a banana plantation uh, completely whereby we export it mostly to the European Union. Uh, now however, we use it as a mixed farm, you know, producing a lot of other stuff, mostly um, grains and you know sesame, other types of fruit,
2: Very quickly during our interview with Koshan, he led us down this crazy rabbit hole about the larger history of banana farming in Somalia, the outsized role this one fruit played in Somalia's tumultuous past. Commercial family farms like Koshan's are where the banana industry in Somalia was born and where it eventually unraveled. These farms bore witness to how bananas were used as an instrument of power by the people who held the reins of the country, starting with the Italians.
1: I only found out a few years ago that literally it was only the Italians that introduced it. Somalis would never eat bananas. So it's relatively new, but it's so incorporated with Somali culture now. It's amazing.
2: Somalia was colonized by the Italian Empire in 1889. And by the 1920s, Somalia was split into two. The northwestern part was run by the British, and the rest was a colony of Italy.
3: The Italians came up with the idea to convert their part of the country, an extremely fertile V-shaped river valley called the Shabelle Valley in southern Somalia, into huge banana plantations.
1: So they planned for this part of Africa to be like the African Riviera, basically. And the first Italian investors was actually the Italian Royal family, and they built Like a a big farming community where they set up two plantations. They set up small railways connecting these plantations to Mogadishu.
2: The Italians also established an extensive irrigation system that's still around today, as well as roads and even a port in Mogadishu. But only the colonial government was allowed to export bananas. They established the Royal Banana Monopoly Firm, which had full control of the export and transport of Somali bananas to Italy. It owned a fleet of ships known as the Ramps, which transported refrigerated bananas from Somalia all the way to Italy. Not only that, Somali bananas had special access in the Italian market, because any other banana from anywhere other than Somalia was basically taxed. And to make sure there was a market for bananas once they arrived, they created a demand for Somali bananas.
1: It actually made it the law that Italian children would have to be served bananas in schools, like as part of their school meal. Every child needs a banana a day for health reasons, nutritional reasons. So they created that market kind of thing.
3: As Somali bananas rose to become an international commodity, banana exports grew fast under the Italians. Between 1936 and 1955, Somalia produced 94 billion tons of banana. But to keep exports this high, the colonial authorities depended heavily on enslaved Somalis to carry out the labor on their farms.
1: They would round up a bunch of people. They would work. It was kind of a weird form of uh, crop sharing whereby, you know, they would work on the banana plantations and they'd be given a little piece of land to grow uh, whatever they need to eat, like maize or sesame or whatever else cash crop they want to go. And the other part of their working life, they work on on the plantations.
2: Some researchers even documented how women were forcibly sold into marriage to bear children in order to produce more hands in the farms. In other cases, a bachelor tax was imposed on unmarried men.
1: It did start off in a very violent way. A lot of people were kidnapped. A lot of people were enslaved or taken as serfs, but later it developed into real industries.
2: After Somali independence from Italy in 1960, Somali land ownership became more common and land deeds moved from Italian to Somali hands. Many Italians left and those who stayed grew old and eventually sold off their land, which is how Koshan's family first bought their farms
1: the owners of our farm, Slanzi. The man and the wife didn't have children. They grew old. And I don't know if they could manage it by themselves. And the security was getting a little poor also. So uh, they, they moved away to, to Italy.
2: Siad Bare came to power as a result of a military coup. And then he started nationalizing most of Somalia's banana plantations. So now the government owned nearly all of them, alongside the few Italian owners who remained in Somalia. Barre's government made big investments in the banana industry. He gave out loans to farmers, developed irrigation schemes to cover more land, and was able to put foreign earnings into programs like mass education and women empowerment initiatives.
3: But all this wasn't paying off. In 1981, Somalia asked the international community for help and took out an IMF loan. As part of the loan agreements, a new joint venture dubbed Somal Fruit was established. Under Somal Fruit, Somali plantation owners alongside Italian investors were given a bigger share in banana production and ownership. Koshin's dad made the most of this partnership.
1: It was in my dad's generation that it really got to start big operations to export with Somali fruit. And this was when it was functioning at its most optimum mode there.
2: This was the heyday of the banana industry in Somalia. Banana exports to Italy and new markets in the Middle East reached their peak around the late 80s to the early 90s. In 1990 specifically, banana exports were higher than in any other year. Somalia was able to sell 75 billion tons of banana and make about $25 million in foreign earnings, making it one of the top exporters in the whole of Africa.
3: But Somali's economy was walking on an ever-narrowing path. The intense focus on selling to foreign markets ultimately ended up creating a banana production culture entirely dependent on exports. On top of that, Somalis got a rather small piece of the banana pie. Just a quarter of it, to be precise. This export-oriented model fell on its head When the civil war hit in 1991 and the banana industry collapsed.
0: In the early 1990s, the Somali civil war had reduced the nation to a
4: failed state. Millions were on the verge of starving to death as famine sacked the country. In In the months ahead, one and a half million people.
3: The civil war began as an armed resistance to Siad Barra's regime, which grew into a much larger conflict between various competing factions after he was overthrown.
5: Children as young as eight take part in the fierce and bitter fighting that continues as the powerful clans now battle each other for supremacy. A poignant reminder of the failed U.S.-led United Nations mission to move a substantial
4: American force into Somalia. American troops hoping to safeguard the delivery of food and medicine to help turn this crisis around.
5: Operation. So what was happening after the fall of uh, Said Barry was that? The various uh, factions were vying for um, power.
2: This is Rafael Najuko, a professor of African history and culture at Idaho State University.
5: And they saw the uh, banana industry as a source of uh, life wire.
2: One of the generals who came to power to challenge the socialist president at the time was a man named Muhammad Farah Aidit.
5: Farah Aidid was one of the warlords. If you look at some of the World Bank uh, statistics, Farah Aidid, for instance, required $25,000 weekly or so to support his militia men.
2: Another estimate put this number at around $40,000 weekly for Farah Aidid to keep his militia in operation.
5: So. he needed the little tax he was able to extract from the banana industry to keep himself in power and pay off uh, those within his militia.
2: Basically, ID taxed every crate of bananas being shipped abroad to finance himself and his militia. And to get that money, did partnered with a new multinational company in town.
1: So, uh, have you heard of Dole, D O L E, the American fruit company? D-O-L-E, Dole. So, Dole came into Somalia as a competitor to Somali fruit, and this is how the banana war started.
2: Dole, Dole. Dole. that red-lettered sticker with a ray of sunshine piercing through the O, you see almost an all bananas in the U.S. and worldwide. That same Dole saw an opportunity to cash in on Somali bananas after production was suspended for a few years after the Civil War.
5: Farah Aidid partnered with Dole. And Dole, they broke the monopoly of um, Somali fruit, or they challenged the monopoly of Somali fruit. So Farah Aidid empowered Dole to take control of the export industry, and of course, um, they were giving him a good amount of returns on that.
2: And so began the battle between Dole and smalfruit. Sometimes I did would play Dole and Samalfruit against one another, making deals with whoever could produce the most for export. But the competition was fierce, and it led to an open conflict between both companies, a conflict that spiraled
1: into violence. So Dole, who instead of, you know, Impede on Somali food's trucks, shoot up the trucks as they're going to port. You know, generally, making it very difficult for operations to continue. And this is how the banana war started because Somali food, in retaliation, started also you know playing the same dirty games, arming themselves, guarding the banana truck convoys to the port with armed men. And so it
5: went like that. Uh, let me just say that it came to a point where. Militia men would drive by and shoot uh, the other business uh, employees, or even small producers and their fans. You know, it wasn't much killings. I don't think it was that. And the fact was most people ran away from their their farms because these militia men pop in now and then. Forced out of their homes by devastation and starvation, many Somali people fled to makeshift refugees. Afraid of their lives, some people ran away and of course then when killings came, sporadic or you know, here and there, people are shot over um, how what their stand was and who should control the banana industry. That was when the whole industry began to collapse and I think by 1997 everything came to a standstill.
2: Eventually, Dole scaled down on their activities and in late 1996, pulled out of Somalia due to disagreements over paying the militias. But on the ground, people like Koshin were deeply affected by the infighting from the Banana War. Irrigation systems were ruined. Ports were destroyed. The only option left for most farmers was to flee their farms and not look back. Koshin's family, which
3: included his eight siblings, stayed at the farm where around 400 militia men were either hiding out or guarding the area at the height of the war. But they needed to find a way out quick. So his dad, who was in Nairobi, got in touch with Koshin's family through his high-frequency radio and told them about a ship.
1: A ship that was leaving for Yemen that will depart from a city called Kismayo, which is basically 600 miles or kilometers south of us. But the waves were really large, a lot of people couldn't swim, dangerous at night. So, after 10 miles of the ocean, we came back to land again and we decided to go car route. We went to the city. My mom had some friends who had a house there, so we stayed there overnight. And my dad basically organized for a small Cessna to land at Kismayo to basically take the nine of us.
3: Then they boarded a flight to Nairobi.
1: And one of the most vivid images I have is... When the plane landed, there was like a, a small bag... Full of uh, merindas and cokes, basically... Which I hadn't had for a few good months. So the, the, the biggest memory I have of escape... Was basically flying away on the plane... And drinking the cold uh, merinda... As we landed in Nairobi, basically. To
2: After the break... Koshin begins his journey back to Somalia and starts on a mission to bring the banana industry back to life. After fleeing Somalia, Koshin's family moved around a lot. He lived in Pakistan and the UK and then worked with his dad at his NGO in Ethiopia for eight years. The
1: reason why I came back to Africa was because I saw that the future was kind of dim in Europe. For a young guy like me. And because I ended up in Ethiopia, I always thought that if the Somali situation became better, I'll obviously come back to the farm. So it was a plan that sort of revealed itself.
2: In 2016, he decided to move back and revive his family farm.
1: Before I came here, I had an image of uh, me coming back here, producing a hell of a lot of bananas, making a ton of money Sitting around with my Panamanian hat, going to the beach, enjoying myself. <laughs> Sadly, that has not been the case.
2: When he came back, the farm was unrecognizable from the idyllic image he had from his childhood.
1: Uh, there is overgrowth in a lot of areas. Oh, but a lot of the equipment is just rusted through. It, yeah, it feels very nostalgic because... All around you is signs of bygone days of prosperity.
3: The civil war left Somali farmland in ruins. Unattended for almost two decades, the land was overgrown with invasive plant species. It tore through the entire farms and according to Koshin was so deadly that if a thorn were to prick you, you'd need to amputate a limb. But he slowly got rid of the overgrowth and began to get the farm back under control. He tried not to put too much emotion into it.
1: Feelings is, I don't know, I don't know how to describe, like, you know, what you feel, but I'm just turned thinking in terms of objective goals. Like, you know, I came here, I saw the situation. I have a plan of how to bring it back or how to improve the situation so we could make some new production. Your job as a farmer, it's never done. You cut uh, weed growth, it regrows. You, you make a canal... And because of the silting, it will be buried up, so you need to dig it again. You grow a crop, you harvest it, you need to replant it. So nothing is in a kind of fully done state at the farm. It's a cyclical thing.
2: But things have not been easy for Koshin because of the economic and security situation in the country. He came back with a plan to revive his farm and perhaps start exporting some of the fruit he grew on it. Working on this story, we were also excited for what Koshin was doing. Me personally, I romanticized it in my head a bit. Here is someone from the Somali diaspora returning to live off the land, while also helping to rebuild his country. It sounded exciting. So naturally, we thought that he would be one of those farmers making a comeback. And I wanted to ask how much of the bananas actually make it to markets abroad?
1: We don't export. No, we don't export now. So our production does not even cover the domestic demand. There's no talk of export because exports takes a lot of, you know, organization, linkages, working in lockstep. None of that exists.
2: He told us that a group of NGOs tried pilot projects to export abroad, but they were just that, one-off pilot projects. No one was ready to finance the sector, which is in terrible need of infrastructure and equipment, a facelift to the port, and a redo of the roads. It would take billions of dollars of investments, if not more. Plus, they would need to find a way to evade the control of Al-Shabaab, a militant group based in Somalia, who tax the food trucks passing their checkpoints on the roads.
3: Koshin, what percentage are we talking? How much are they taking?
1: It's a bunch of little stuff, but uh, when you add it up, I think... It's upwards of 50%. You know, for example, so you'd be taxed on your produce, on the bananas itself. Then there would be a separate tax for the car going down a particular highway. Then there'd be a sales tax.
2: Without Shabab forcing farmers to split their profits and the economy already in shambles, Koshin says farmers don't even produce enough bananas to cover domestic demand. On top of that, they don't have enough government support to help with upgrading equipment and infrastructure. We were surprised and, frankly, a little disappointed to find out that Somali bananas were in fact not making a comeback. To be sure and to shake off our denialism, we posed this question to Dr. Hussein Haji, a banana tissue plant breeder and the executive director of Somali Agriculture Technical Group which is working to research innovative solutions in the Somali agriculture sector.
3: Um, do you think Somali bananas are making a comeback?
4: Well, I think sometimes um, this um, there's some exaggeration into that. Uh, the, the people like to for the banana to come back, Somali banana, and we like too. But there's a reality on the ground that uh, this would not happen shortly or, or, or in, in a very short period of time. The country is not yet ready for banana export. There were so many attempts since the civil unrest until now, but it has not happened yet. Having said that doesn't mean that it will not happen. The potential is there.
3: Dr. Haji says that there were some obstacles getting in the way of ripe banana exports. And if they were removed, Somalia could truly make a comeback. Lack of security and infrastructure were two of the most important ones others included the high cost of banana production in Somalia because of the immense resources put into irrigating banana trees and not having available banana packing stations
4: so it's something that can be worked out and uh, and it can be brought back but it needs uh, uh, all the stakeholders coming together like the financial institutions uh, the commercial farmers uh, the investors who would be interested for banana export Uh, the banks to support the banana farmers, and the technology also.
2: Technologies such as the one Dr. Hadji and his group have been developing themselves.
4: And among the technologies that um, we have been testing for many years includes the tissue culture.
2: Tissue culture is basically a type of cloning.
4: So basically what you do is you take a small tissue from banana and you multiply it in the lab and uh, from one plant, Maybe you multiply it to 1,000 or 2,000 plants in the laboratory.
2: Using tissue culture technology would streamline the production process, making it less labor-intensive, less resource-intensive, but friendlier on the environment. And whereas the way bananas have been grown for centuries in Somalia was destructive, this could be a more sustainable way of doing it, a process that could contribute to the rebirth of Somali bananas.
4: So what is happening now, in fact, we're getting some orders from different parts of Somalia. In fact, last week, we shipped 2,000 plants of tissue culture to Hargesa for a farmer who is interested to start banana plantation in, in, in Hargesa, Somalia. So it's, it's, it's getting uh, momentum, and uh, farmers are realizing the need for the tissue culture plants. So I hope that in the future, when the banana business comes back, All the things will uh, be something that will support and help farmers uh, get a clean plant in the field.
3: Dr. Haji and his team believe that when the security situation improves in Somalia, everything will fall into place. But until that day comes, they're determined to push ahead
4: themselves. You cannot just sit back and say that, Okay, I'm going to wait for the security. Uh, to come. So, we have decided that we'll do this work with or without security. So no matter what, because we wanted to make these changes and uh, and the time is clicking and you cannot just wait. I, I think the Somali community are very resilient, uh, the business community are resilient, farmers as well. So they want to have a life, they want to live uh, despite the, the difficulties. And I can guarantee you one thing, if the country's security is uh, established A lot of investment will be there, available for the country.
2: When the time comes, perhaps the true comeback won't take the same shape as the banana industry of the 19th and 20th centuries through a mass export model. But maybe it'll take a different shape, in which farms like Koshan's will have a big role to play. But for now, he finds it hard to see the silver lining when he can barely keep his farm running.
1: I'm barely breaking even. But it's about survival. It's about maintaining the property as it is so that if there is a change in the political security circumstances that we may be able to get back to normal.
2: And in this life, away from the city, in the seclusion of his land, producing his own food, especially bananas, Koshin has found a new perspective.
1: I think the banana is a super resilient, super useful fruit for the Somalis. I think that even without exporting it, there will continue to be a demand for bananas in Somalia, which uh, leaves us safe to continue growing it. It's part of my history, like in the olden days, even before the Italians arrived, we used to own a lot of land here, like my particular tribe of people. And so I feel a deep attachment to this land, I'm part of the history or the legacy in terms of my family at this land and yeah i see it as a mission to continue that
2: so now that we're almost done with our story um how do you reflect back on our whole experience
3: I don't know. I'm, ne- I'm never gonna look at bananas the same way. After after this experience, I feel like I'm definitely gonna look at bananas in a whole new light. We went into this journey about Somali bananas and we've uncovered so much. It almost made me reflect our dependence on Somali bananas, right? Our association with bananas has always been, you know, almost the the one thing that can bring back our economy. Should we bring a comeback after we discovered like how contentious this crop is? I really don't think that we should kind of be known as just people who export and produce Somali bananas. I think we definitely need to go beyond that. Stop our reliance on this fruit. Bananas had its time and place. I think it's time to move on.
0: I'm hopeful. This episode was produced by Nadine Shakir and Sousan Abdullahi. It was edited by me, Dana Balut, and Alex Atak. Fact checking was by Dina Sabri and sound design by Munzer Al hashin Our team also
2: includes Zena Duwidar and Finbar Anderson. A special thanks to everyone who talked to us for the story Mona Khalmar, who interviewed people at the restaurant, Koshan Garane, Rafael Nujuko, Abdi Samatar, and Hussein Hadji. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Take care.